Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Do we need to say from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago thing, or can I just say, welcome to Resound, I'm Gwen Maxa. Oh, okay, I got it. Ooh, sorry. I didn't know we'd started. I'm Gwen Maxi, and welcome to a very special episode of Resound. Today, we're coming to you from inside the Third Coast Institute of Sound. What is this place? Well, it's a fictional museum we have dreamed up, where all of the exhibits and artifacts are dedicated to things that make sound and noise. And of course, because we're Third Coast, every object in here comes complete with its own story. Now, as you might have noticed on your way in, the facade of this postmodern building with its two large round windows on either side is designed to look like a radio. Obviously, it's too big to get through in one day, but we'll guide you through what we can in the next hour. Let's check out what's on display. Do you have your ticket? All right, let's go. Can I help you find All right, so let's turn into this gallery to our right and start with this strange contraption in the glass case. So this is one of a number of objects on loan from the Museum of Imaginary Musical Instruments. In case you're wondering, these are instruments that have been created by authors in books and movies, like the ocular harpsichord, or an object that's been appearing in literature since the first century AD, a horn that freezes notes so that you can listen to them later. So I think we just need to punch in the numbers here on the audio tour, all right. And then we're gonna hear about this first item, the cat piano. Welcome to the Museum of Imaginary Musical Instruments. My name's Deirdre Lockridge and I'm a co-curator. My friend Thomas Pattison and I are both music historians interested particularly in the technological aspect of music history. And as we move through the exhibits, I hope you'll notice how these technologies both provide commentary on the time in which they emerged, and at the same time, many of these technologies predict or anticipate new inventions typical of the 20th and 21st centuries. Please remember, no flash photography. If you need instructions on using your audio player, press the green play button now. As you tour the exhibitions, look out for the headphone icon accompanied by a number. Just enter that number in your keypad. Oh, for heaven's sake, you know all this. You're not children. Anyway, if you must, pause using the yellow button, resume by pressing the green. Volume control is on the side of the handset. I'm sure you can manage that. You are now entering the Sentient Sounds exhibit. What you see in front of you in the large glass display case is the earliest known example of the cat piano. Now this is one of the most remarkable stories in the domain of imaginary instruments, one that has vexed historians for some time, and one that is, of course, potentially quite disturbing. 
So as you can see, the cat piano has a conventional musical keyboard of two or three octaves, typically. The sound producing device, instead of plucked or hammered strings, as in conventional keyboard instruments, is the array of cats imprisoned in a row corresponding to the musical scale. And the idea was that one could effectively play an orchestra of pitched feline voices. Now, if you want to refer to your audio guide, you can hear a synthesized version of this with no cats being harmed. Most disturbing. One popular story tells us it was used by a court physician to treat a melancholy prince, wheeled in and used to entertain him so he could get on with the business of ruling the kingdom. He must have been mad. I mean, just look at it. Those tiny metal cages and vicious spikes. It's enough to make my batteries shake with fear. So this idea of cruelty, which is so striking and disturbing in the cat piano, remarkably is something that comes up again and again in the history of imaginary musical instruments. A more recent example is the torture tron in the film version of The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, directed by Terry Gilliam in 1988. And if you look over across the room, you can see our replica of the torture tron. I have been composing a short opera. Would you like to hear a song or two? No, thank you. Oh, you'll love it. It's a comedy. It's called The Torturer's Apprentice. This is effectively a twist on the cat piano, but with human beings instead of cats as the sound-producing agents. Now, please move to the next room. That was The Cat Piano and Torturetron from our friends at ABCRN's Soundproof. And let me tell you, I do not even want to know how they tune those cats. We'll hear more from the Museum of Imaginary Musical Instruments a little later. But in the meantime, let's head across that hall and move on to another gallery. Oh look, there's the filmless auditorium. Of course, something's playing in there right now, so we can't go in at the moment. But just ahead of us is an exhibit about synthetic voices. You know what I mean by that, right? Wait a second. Hey Siri, do my dogs dream about me? Interesting question, Quinn. Well, you get the idea. But what you might not know is that the synthetic voice first debuted at the 1939 World's Fair in New York. All right, here we are at the exhibit, Vox Ex Machina. Let's go in, check it out. In 1939, an astonishing new machine debuted at the World's Fair in New York City. It was called the Voter, short for Voice Operating Demonstrator. It looked sort of like a futuristic church organ. That's our own Delaney Hall. An operator, known as a voderette, would sit at a curved wooden console. Behind her, there was a huge wall with an Art Deco image of a man's face with these spirals of curly hair. His mouth was a giant speaker. The voderette would place her hands on two keyboards in front of her, each with five or six white keys. She'd use her feet to work two pedals down below. But instead of musical notes, the machine produced a voice. Now will you have him repeat that in a high voice? And now in his best face. This is from a demo recording of the voter produced in 1939 around the same time as the World's Fair. Each of the keys on the keyboard controlled a particular frequency band. One foot pedal controlled pitch, and the other foot pedal controlled whether the sound would be muffled or crisp. Operating this machine required incredible precision and skill. Voderettes would train for up to a year to make the voter actually talk like a person. Or sing like a person. Suppose you sing a song for us, will you? Yes, yeah. mm-hmm. Well, how about Auld Lang Syne? Auld Lang Syne? Okay. 
And remember, this is all happening totally live. The Voderette is not triggering pre-recorded words. Instead, the keys and pedals of the voter imitate the effects of the human vocal tract, producing the most basic building blocks of speech. The Voderette is playing them in an intricate sequence, and she's actually synthesizing speech, real time. The crowds at the World's Fair went crazy for this talking machine. It created a sensation. This is John Paul. He's an engineer, inventor, and historian. It was the first time there had ever been working speech synthesis anywheres. People had no conception that you could even do it. Here's voters' imitation of a cow. The voter was invented by an engineer named Homer Dudley. And Homer Dudley's area of expertise was speech science. Dudley worked at Bell Labs, a research facility that belonged to AT&T. And during the 1920s and 30s, Bell Labs was doing all kinds of research into the human voice. How to synthesize it electronically. How to compress it so it could be sent across enormous distances quickly and cheaply. How to encode and disguise it. And all this research helped AT&T's basic goal, which was to improve the phone system in the United States. The voter was a novelty offshoot related to this research into speech, but it was closely connected to a number of Dudley's inventions at Bell Labs that still shape our world today. A lot of that basic research turned out to be things which have impacted our modern technology and world enormously. Stuff that became critical to the development of digital media, for example. And on top of all of that, Dudley's inventions helped us win a war. December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America... Just a couple years after the voters' debut at the World's Fair, Japan launched an early morning attack on Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. It came as a profound shock to the U.S. And the next day, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt announced the country would be entering World War II. With confidence in our armed forces, with the unbounding determination of our people, we will gain the inevitable triumph, so help us God. World War II would be the most widespread war in history. The U.S. would be fighting in Europe and the Pacific and parts of North Africa all at the same time. And it was a huge challenge to coordinate troops across that much territory. It was obvious the only communication possible would be by radio. And that radio was, of course, insecure. The enemy is listening. In other words, there wasn't really anything besides radio that could stretch across the distances involved. But radio is easily intercepted. And so... The problem of encryption and secret messages of military importance became more and more serious. At the very start of the war, the U.S. military still relied on an old-school piece of technology for its sensitive conversations. It was called the A3 Scrambler. It worked by scrambling voice frequencies, swapping high frequencies for low and low frequencies for high, garbling the sound. Here's an example of what it might have sounded like. But it was easy to decode these scrambled conversations. The A3 was being compromised and it was not a secure system. That's Dave Tompkins, who's researched the history of various speech synthesizers and their connections to music. German intelligence was, they were essentially descrambling some of these conversations between FDR and Churchill in real time. And the U.S. military knew the German codebreakers were listening in. So The uh, U.S. government gave Bell Labs the mission of creating an unbreakable speech encryptor. And Bell Labs went to our old friend Homer Dudley, the guy who invented the talking machine of the World's Fair. They said, Dudley... We need you to figure this out really fast. They were under tremendous wartime pressure to produce this thing quickly. I think the whole design took about a year. 
Thankfully, Dudley had already been working on technology related to this problem for years. It all went back to the voter and to another related invention of Dudley's called the vocoder. Music nerds might know the term vocoder because it's the great-grandfather of the machine you hear in all kinds of pop music today. Vocoder was short for voice encoder, and the machine could break down a human voice, separate it into its basic components, and then compress and transmit those components via shortwave channel. It could transmit the minimal amount of signals required to reconstruct that message at the other end. This process was important, revolutionary actually, because it allowed the human voice to be digitized and compressed and sent across big distances. But the vocoder didn't fully disguise the voice. The transmission could still technically be pulled out of the air and decoded. So Dudley and his team had to add a layer of unbreakable encryption. And that's how the vocoder became just one small part of a much larger and more intricate apparatus. A secure communication system that would allow allied military leaders in strategic locations around the world to talk in total secrecy. It was called Project X, a.k.a. the Green Hornet, a.k.a. Sig Sally. Which was short for nothing, really. It was meant to be confusing. Each Sig Sally machine was enormous, weighing more than 50 tons. It was a pretty complicated behemoth of a device. It wasn't even a device, it was a room in itself. It occupied about 2,000 square feet and was made up of 40 racks of equipment. It needed air conditioning because a lot of the electronics was so delicately balanced that if it got too hot or too cold, it would not work properly. In fact, the device was full of so many finely calibrated tubes and gadgets that the military created a whole division of engineers whose sole job was to maintain the machines. The 805th Signal Service Company. We were pretty much in charge of the installation and operation of the system. That's Don Mel. Before he enlisted, he was an amateur radio operator from Omaha. And he was one of the engineers assigned to work on Sig Sally. He reported for duty in Washington, D.C. and spent his first two weeks in an intensive class. Where we learned all the the technical details and the operation, and then it was pretty much on-the-job training. The first Sig Sally terminal was installed in the basement of the Pentagon, and it was connected to several conference rooms upstairs. Elegantly furnished. There was wine-colored, thick, thick carpeting on the floor. They were beautiful rooms. This is Lieutenant Colonel Dorothy L. Madsen. But my nickname is Meg, (laughs) M-E-G. I was in charge of the Global Encrypted Conference Center. The Conference Center is where D.C.-based military leaders would meet to speak over the Sig Sally system. So while Don Mel was down in the basement running the machine, Meg was upstairs, coordinating conference calls with the military brass. She hosted everyone from President Harry Truman to General George Marshall. She sat in on their meetings and transcribed the conversations they had. Any of the men who had the responsibility for the conduct of the war and had to make their phone calls came to my conference center to do it. Communications is the most important thing, and you have to do it with safety and security that, you know, nobody else is tuned in on it. The Sig Sally terminal in the Pentagon was connected to a network of close to a dozen other Sig Sally terminals around the world. These were located in the most strategically important places, where politicians and military leaders would need to be talking with each other on a regular basis. Algiers and London and Paris eventually, and Hawaii and Guam and Australia. There was even a Sig Sally terminal based on a roving ship in the Pacific. And one in beautiful, strategically important, Oakland, California. This network allowed leaders in Washington, D.C. to talk securely with any location that had a terminal. All they needed was a shortwave radio connection. And one other key component. A pair of vinyl phonograph records of totally random noise. This is where the encryption part comes in. Because for every conference that happened over Sig Sally, both the sending and receiving terminals had to have identical records, which played the sound of noise. The noise would combine with the voice components as they were transmitted via shortwave radio, making it impossible for eavesdroppers to decrypt. On the receiving end, the random noise would be extracted and the voice restored. 
In cryptography, these records are what's known as a one-time key. So here's how they worked. Random noise would be generated and then pressed on a gold master. Normally, a phonograph record, you would reproduce thousands of them from a single master. In this case, they made exactly two records. The identical and now totally unique records would be assigned a matching code name. And these code names were awesome. Like Red Strawberry, or Wild Dog, or Circus Clown. So let's say President Harry Truman in Washington, D.C. wants to talk with Prime Minister Winston Churchill in London. Truman keeps one of the two records in Washington, D.C. The second one would be sent to the station at the other side of the ocean and then placed on this special precision turntable. That was a part of the Sig Sally terminal. At the scheduled time for the conference, Sig Sally engineers in D.C. and London would tune in to WWV. At the door, 15 hours, zero minutes, coordinated universal time. Which is the international time control station so that we could synchronize our control clocks Exactly. Then they'd get their identical records spinning on their respective turntables at exactly the same moment. Once the records were synced, Truman would speak into a handset in Meg's conference room at the Pentagon. This is the president, Mr. Prime Minister. This is a reenactment of Truman and Churchill greeting each other when they talked via Sig Sally to discuss a German surrender proposal in 1945. The signal would go down into the basement where Don was running the Sig Sally terminal. The terminal would digitize Truman's voice, mix it with random noise from the record, and then transmit that signal across the ocean via shortwave radio. On the other end, the Sig Sally terminal in London would reverse the process. It would remove the noise, reconstruct the voice, and feed it through Churchill's handset. This is the president, Mr. Prime Minister. After so much processing and such a long distance, the voice didn't sound very good. Like gibberish orated from the bottom of a barrel. But it was intelligible. You had to kind of train your ear a bit. Anyway, then Churchill would reply, How glad I am to hear your voice. And the whole process would be reversed. In this way, Truman and Churchill could have a completely secure, real-time conversation, planning, plotting, and strategizing about the war. When the conversation ended, the two records, which, remember, contained the top-secret random noise key, would be destroyed. That's because if anyone was recording this communication as it traveled over the ocean, the random noise record would be the key to decrypting it. It would allow them to subtract the noise in the same way the Sig Sally engineers did at each end of the transmission. So the records were the most classified and sensitive component of Sig Sally. By the end of World War II, there had been a total of about 3,000 top-secret strategic conferences. In other words, at least 6,000 vinyl records that were pressed, delivered, used, and then destroyed at the end of the call. Compared to today, it would be rudimentary type technology, but uh, for that time, it was way in advance. Nobody even thought of voice communications in terms of being digitized. And because of Sig Sally, the U.S. was able to communicate with the Allies in real time and by voice. So if people were listening in to that signal, if Germans were listening in, what would they hear? Nothing but random noise. Just total white noise. Wow. I mean, it, it might have been so unintelligible that they didn't even realize they were listening to anything at all. They never knew of the existence of the system, and they never had any inkling that it was an encrypted speech. In fact, that's why Sig Sally was nicknamed the Green Hornet, after the popular 1940s radio show. The Green Hornet. Because an intercepted Sig Sally transmission sounded like nothing more than a hornet's buzz. Sig Sally was involved in pretty much every major military operation after 1942. It was even critical in the planning of the Manhattan Project and the dropping of the atomic bombs over Japan. Don Mel was the engineer decrypting and listening in on those Sig Sally conversations, even though he didn't know at the time the meaning of the code words they were using. 
And obviously the sheets coming over and the title was Manhattan Project. Well, I of course didn't know what the Manhattan Project was. Don didn't reflect much on the grave implications of those meetings he overheard. He was an engineer, doing his best to keep the equipment running. You didn't pay that much attention to everything that was said. You're more concerned with the transmission. But he knows it would have been hard for the Allies to win the war without Sig Zally. It's hard to say what we would do if we didn't have it. Even if that victory sometimes came at a brutal price. At the end of the war, the Sig Sally terminals were dumped in the ocean. Almost every encryption device was intentionally destroyed when the war was over for security purposes to the extent of destroying the plans. But not before the military developed successors that were smaller and simpler and easier to set up. These new devices still worked on the same principles of encryption as Sig Sally. And they were used for secure communications during the Cold War, the Korean War, and to negotiate the Cuban Missile Crisis. A lot of the information related to Sig Sally wasn't declassified until the mid-1970s, when AT&T sued the U.S. military under the Freedom of Information Act. Once it was public, technology that originated with Sig Sally went on to entirely new realms. The vocoder, for instance, went on to have a whole new life in music. In the 1970s, electronic musicians like Kraftwerk began using a smaller version of the machine to create weird robotic vocal effects. From Germany, the vocoder spread to the Bronx and Brooklyn, where hip-hop and electro-funk groups started playing around with it. Now you hear it all over the place. But the vocoder's reach actually goes way beyond the robot voice. You're also using vocoder every time you use your mobile phone. But of course, in a much, much reduced size. The giant clunky machine of the past now occupies the space of a tiny chip, which compresses speech and allows hundreds of conversations to pass through a single cell phone tower. And a lot of the technology used to transmit media on the internet can be traced back to Dudley too. That includes MP3 music. That includes video compression. So give thanks to Homer Dudley every time you watch something on the internet. All those millions of viral videos would take up too much space if they couldn't be compressed. Johnny bit me. Oh my God, it's full on. Double rainbow all the way across the sky. <laughs> Everything in our modern digital world of media can be traced back to Dudley's vocoder and to Sig Sali. In the end, the vocoder kind of came full circle. It started its public life as a silly novelty gag, making animal noises for crowds at the 1939 World's Fair. And here's a pig. <laughs> then, like Don Mel and Meg Matson, the vocoder enlisted. It did its service. It helped the Allies win the biggest war the world had ever known. And now, it's back to civilian life, making silly noises once again. The Vox Ex Machina exhibit was made by Delaney Hall and Roman Mars for 99% Invisible. All right, let, let me just try this before we move on. Do I sound like a robot? my god, I love this thing. Alright, watch this step. And one thing I know, I have got to get out of these heels. But, there's one more exhibit I want to show you before we take a break. Oh my god, right past the vintage radios. And, hold on, it's a, we're almost there. Okay, here it is. It's another piece on loan from the Museum of Imaginary Musical Instruments. Alright, let's dial in and listen. My name's Deirdre Lockridge, and I'm the co-creator of the Museum of Imaginary Musical Instruments. So now for the engineers among you, this is a real treat. So come step over here to look at the musical gas as imagined in the 19th century. So 
So this example, Mr. Pumpernickel's musical gas, is a satirical idea of being able to deliver music like a utility. So gas lighting was being introduced into homes. And so this was a story that appeared on the front page of a newspaper as if this were really happening. We figured out how to store music in coal, burn that coal to release the sounds, and pump those sounds to your home where you can then release them into your environment. So it's an early vision of a kind of radio broadcasting. You can take a listen to your audio guide to find out more about how this musical gas works. As you may be able to hear over the terrible din of the machine. Thank you. On your right, there's a copper pipe carried through a wall and flared like the bell of a trumpet on one end. It receives the sound of music and conducts them to a deposit of iron placed in the middle of a red hot stone. Uh, I'm sorry, am I boring you? Pay attention. Here, the condensation of sound waves occurs. Mr. Pumpernickel has not revealed to us the means of the ingenious chemical process by which he obtained this wonderful result. But we believe, we recall, that a concoction of catgut and stony materials combined with copper pipes and bells in fusion is sufficient to effect the transformation of sound waves into a carbon substance that is very similar to coal. <laughs> of course, I understand this, though I have no doubt that some of you are struggling. Many of our instruments come from the 19th century, which is a time of industrialization and so also a lot of belief in the great progress that technology was bringing. And this was also a time of confusion about what could really be done and what was physically impossible. Thank you for your attention. Go through to the next room. That was Mr. Pumpernickel's musical gas. It first appeared in the French musical journal The Minstrel in 1837. All right, I don't know about you, but I have got to sit for a minute. Let's take a quick break, and we'll be back with more audio exhibits from the Third Coast Institute of Sound, a fictional museum we've dreamed up where all of the exhibits and artifacts are dedicated to things that make sound and noise. There's a bench. Ah, see you in a minute. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome back to ReSound. I'm Gwen Maxi. Today we're having a walk together through the Third Coast Institute of Sound, a place we dreamt up just for you. And we're listening to some of the audio exhibits currently on display. 
Now, the next stop on our tour is right up these stairs to our left, over here, just past the short duck's wing. Okay, it's up here. Okay, here it is. Another work currently on loan from the Museum of Imaginary Musical Instruments. So most of us are familiar with the author Roald Dahl, writer of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and Fantastic Mr. Fox. But did you know that he was also an inventor? Just type in number 773 to listen to what Roald Dahl had in mind in one of his beautifully twisted short stories. Now here in the far corner, in this small display case, you see an object that looks perhaps like a, an old radio from the early 20th century. This is the sound machine of rural Dahl. It's a device that ties in with the theme of the sort of uncanny or unpleasant aspects of sound technology. This is possibly my least favorite exhibit. Why would anyone want to invent such a machine? The idea with this device stems from a basic fact of physiology and acoustics, which is that we know that the human ear is basically able to hear only a particular range of frequencies in the auditory spectrum. So there is an entire array of sounds that are either too high or too low for our ears to register as sound. And this is the conceit behind the sound machine. What this device does is effectively extend our hearing so that we're able to hear all these sounds that normally we are blissfully unaware of. And without wanting to spoil the story, this makes for some rather unsettling experiences for many of the users of this device. We hear some things that we might wish we hadn't. If you're feeling particularly brave, you can hear an example of the sound machine by pressing play on your audio guide now. ears actually bleed. Let me briefly tell you what happened when the inventor of the sound machine tried to use it. The little needle crept slowly across the dial and suddenly he heard a shriek, a frightful piercing shriek. And he jumped and dropped his hands catching hold of the edge of the table. He stared around him as if expecting to see the person who had shrieked. There was no one in sight except the woman in the garden next door, and it was certainly not she. She was bending down, cutting yellow roses and putting them in her basket. Again it came, a throatless, inhuman shriek, sharp and short, very clear and cold. The note itself possessed a minor metallic quality that he had never heard before. The woman next door was the only living thing in sight. He saw her reach down, take a rose stem in the fingers of one hand and snip the stem with a pair of scissors. And again he heard the scream. It came at the exact moment when the rose stem was cut. This concludes the information for this room. That was taken from Roald Dahl's The Sound Machine, first published in The New Yorker in 1949. Let's go into the gallery in front of us. There are a number of different objects, and as we get closer, you can see that they're all made out of everyday things, like a Coke can or a soccer ball or shotgun shell casings. And if we stop and read the plaque, it says, every year, thousands of people try to secretly cross into America by foot. It's a brutal, daunting trip. Some make it, some are caught and sent back, and still others die in the effort. And along the way, the landscape is littered with objects left behind testaments to the struggle people endure trying to get here. 
Photographer Richard Misrach and composer Guillermo Galindo have been collecting these objects left by migrants and transforming them into musical instruments in the hopes of giving voice to statistics. Wow. Let's have a listen to the story of this exhibit called Gone with a Trace. Along the border, I have found clothing, backpacks, water bottles, tennis shoes, human artifacts everywhere. Ultimately, these are the objects that these people chose to bring with them to the U.S. Every one of these um, artifacts has a, a human story. There are items that we all use in our daily lives. I find toothbrushes and rolls of toilet paper empty cans of beans and bottles. And we can relate to the human tragedy and to these people that cross the border with these items. I found stuffed animals, wallets, passports, soccer balls, Border Patrol shotgun shells, Border Patrol drag tires. These are the tires they, they pull along the sand to, to smooth out so that they can see the, the footprints of migrants. Well, I didn't know much about the border when I lived in Mexico. I learned about the border I was studying here. My name is Guillermo Galindo. I'm a composer. Every day I see people that are immigrants. And I, uh, it, it called my attention. And I started um, investigating about this, about the building of the wall. My name is Richard Misrak. I'm a photographer. I've been uh, photographing the American West for almost 40 years. And in recent years, in 2009, the border wall has been, the building of it has been escalated to a level where it's basically a militarized border. In the 2000s, uh, I decided to start photographing that in earnest. The first time I went there, I found uh, a child's uh, backpack. It had this cartoon character, Blue's Clues. And uh, my, my son that was at, at that time very young used to love this cartoon character. I opened the backpack, and there was soda. That is a very popular soda in Mexico that I used to drink when I was a child. So it really hit very hard when I saw that. Ever since I met Guillermo, it was, you know, his idea initially was collecting all these items. But since then, I've sort of picked up the, the job. And every time I go on a trip and I photograph the border from the Pacific Ocean to the Gulf of Mexico... I find things along the border, you know, it could be sections of the border wall itself. Each of these things I send back uh, to Guillermo so that he can turn into instruments. My idea of starting working with instruments made out of personal objects uh, started when my, my father died. My mother told me to go to the closet where his clothing, his clothes were. And I started going through the clothing, and I found that my father was in every piece of clothing that I was looking at, the way they were folded, the way they were chosen. And I think there's a, there's a very personal thing between the objects that go through our lives and ourselves is something that we touched and we went through. So you'll find a discarded backpack, and for example, like a pink one had uh, all kinds of things that indicated a little girl, which included everything from a compact mirror to a Tampex to a small purse with 78 pesos. Uh, one young man's had a four condoms, a green glass bottle of muscalone, a baseball cap. So the micro-orchestra is not one instrument, it's several items. And all of these items are children's items or small, tiny items that we found. Early in 2014, um, after several years of coming across adult items and children's items, a combination of things uh, everywhere along the border, uh, in Texas, suddenly I came across fields of just children's items. And that's where I found the girl, little girl's tweezers, two Bibles, children's Bibles, 
the tennis shoes of like four-year-old kids. Uh, there was actually a toy helicopter. All kinds of items that just indicated children. And it was very disturbing and mysterious because normally you find a combination of things if there's any children involved. What I'm doing here is I went to the studio and we picked up some very sensitive microphones. And literally what I'm doing is playing sounds of, uh, that these objects produce that are very, very difficult to uh, perceive with our bare uh, ears. Barack Obama spoke again today about what he's called an urgent humanitarian situation. Thousands of unaccompanied children crossing the border into the United States. It was only several months later as stories came out that indicated that this was a part of a, a group of 52,000 unaccompanied children that were coming from Central America. The U.S. is emphasizing children who don't meet the criteria to stay will be returned to their home countries. I take this as an analogy of the thousands of children that are crossing the border and their voices that are unheard. I, I, I see this, uh, this um, forcing ourselves to listen to these very tiny sounds as an effort to hear the voices of these children. And in 2009, um, I found these uh, human effigies made out of migrant clothing uh, that were put on uh, agave stalks. They looked like scarecrows lined along the uh, California border. And uh, they were very eerie, very mysterious. Um, they, just, they were just all along the border with, with no information or signage. And so I did a series of photographs of those. I saw the photograph of the effigies that uh, Richard took, and I was very inspired. You know, I wasn't sure if they were supposed to be warnings to other migrants uh, coming across or if they were protests against the Border Patrol or if they were art pieces. But they were so disturbing and haunting, um, they felt like potent symbols, um, very mysterious but, but potent symbols of the issues at the time. I had a lot of clothing, immigrants' clothing, and uh, what I did is uh, I designed these wooden cross that symbolize a human standing and it's all hollow it's made of wood it's called hollow so that uh, it resonates and I had a friend of mine that is a fashion designer carefully sew all of the clothing into this cross and then I installed uh, strings from one arm to the other and in the chest of this figure this human figure One thing that I found was a, a single boot and an old copy of Dr. Zhivago, a library copy that was bound in uh, leather. This was by the uh, San Diego-Tijuana uh, border. Clearly, whoever jumped the fence lost both the book and, and the boot. I photographed them where I found them. I brought them back, and um, I started looking at the Dr. Zhivago, and then and it was in, you know, in Spanish version, a beautiful, beautiful old version. And I found in the boot a single bus ticket of a, a like a, um, a college student's bus ticket. So clearly this was a college student uh, that had done this. Tapatelo. This is a large structure and it's made all of wood uh, that we found in the border. It's based on Leonardo da Vinci's martello that was a machine I made to, to, to produce. It, was a, it had a hammer. So it's a crank that you crank around and uh, the hammer hits uh, the nail or whatever you're hammering. But instead of the, of the hammer, I used a shoe and a glove that are hitting a drum that is made out of one of these tires that uh, Richard was talking about, these tires that they drag around the border. And uh, this uh, tire has a, a rawhide on top, and it has become like this big uh, Native American drum. It's a very deep, low-frequency sound. 
uh, low frequency sounds, we feel them more than we hear them. And it's very striking. It, it really gets, um, when you hear it live, it really strikes your body, uh, particularly your, your abdomen. You can hear it with your abdomen. And it also has all of these very, very small little sounds that are about the machinery, creaks and cracks and little things that complement the sound. The Dr. Schwago, um, I got an English copy to reread it, and every page of the Dr. Schwago in English, um, even though it's from the Cold War and Russia and all that, it was completely relevant to the issues that migrants are facing today. I thought it uh, profound. So Guillermo's taken that book and the Spanish volume and has begun to get recordings by people reading the, uh, each of the pages from Dr. Schwaco. I came up with this idea uh, based in the uh, pre-Columbian uh, beliefs where pre-Columbian societies and the native people of the Americas believed that there was an intimate connection between any sonic device and the material which is made of. So I think that there's a very intimate connection between the object, the person that brought it there, and the sound that that instrument produces. People often uh, talk about them, Guillermo says this a lot, they talk about them as trash. They are not trash because of the context. A tennis shoe found in the trash is very different than a tennis shoe found on the moon. And then there's a tennis shoe found on the border. I mean, these tennis shoes have come as far, you know, sometimes four-year-old uh, children have walked all the way from Central America across the border, and you find their tennis shoes on the border. I mean, I get chills when I think about it. Richard's photographs, I can see them graphically as very beautiful compositions. I think a key image uh, is one of the border wall sort of transgressing the, the landscape. Into, you know, I'm sort of at a high perspective, and you, you see way down in the desert, you see this small little wall that goes and bifurcates the, the landscape, and basically the U.S. from Mexico, and the absurdity of that wall. But at the same time, I see the death of the, of the soul that is inside of them. I hear music when I see them. It's a wall that uh, 15-year-old girls can uh, scale in, in 15 seconds, and yet we, we spend all this money on this wall. So it, it, that picture for me it both shows, in a sense, the beauty and... Um, and power of the landscape, but also sort of the, um, the sort of funny human intervention that's really all about politics. There's another photograph of um, a woman that I met through the wall near San Diego in Tijuana. Uh, her name is Veronica. Uh, I was photographing at a place called Friendship Circle, which is a place where Families on both sides of the border are allowed to meet for four hours on weekends between on Saturday and Sunday between uh, 10 and 2. And a woman on the other side uh, called to me and we started talking. And I, I couldn't make her out. You know, I could make out her eyes and her mouth. And she, she was really sweet and smart and interesting. And we just started talking. So I did a portrait of her. And it was amazing because her identity is obscured completely by by this this mesh, which is supposed to be, you know, euphemistically the friendship circle where people can meet. That image is really powerful for me. Since working with Guillermo, I hear the landscape now in ways. You know, I'm always sensitized to what I'm seeing, but now I hear things in a way that I've never heard before, so that the sound of this landscape is very powerful. And Guillermo sensitized me to all those nuances that I think impact the way I take pictures. We became indispensable to each other. You wonder why why are people leaving their so much clothes and and food and money? I mean, I find pesos and uh, dollars. 
we see a lot of numbers and we see a lot of statistics and we see a lot of things, but we don't realize that each of these numbers is a human life and is as important as any other human life. That is part of the issue, which is that you find these artifacts and you don't know what's become of them. It's called the hueso cordio, and it's made out of wood. A lot of times when migrants come across the desert, they're so filthy and dirty, they actually throw away their clothes, put on a fresh bit of clothes so they don't have a tell. You know, if they're walking along the border and they're in really dirty clothes, it'll draw attention to the border patrol. So I think sometimes that that's intentional, but in these instances with Bibles and things like that, uh, it didn't make any sense. Is based on the Japanese koto. It makes a very, very oriental kind of sound. Some probably have been uh, caught by the border patrol and sent back. Some have perished. I've recently been going out with um, groups, humanitarian groups, that look for bodies. They literally go to the most remote places of the desert just to find bodies that they believe are out there to get them and return them to their families in Mexico. It's a mess, and, and it is a humanitarian crisis. Gone with the Trace was made by Joan Weber and was first heard on the CBC's The Current. It features instruments made by Guillermo Galindo. All right, so it's close to closing time, but we have time to check out this one last exhibit over here. Ooh, heavy door. All right, it's right on the other side of the Third Coast Hall of Winners. Definitely have to check that one out. And it's another one from the Museum of Imaginary Musical Instruments. I've been saving this one for last because it's about, what else? The radio of the future. And the number on your guide is 1999. This is a treat for the radio enthusiasts among you. This is the radio of the future by the Russian futurist poet Velimir Klebnikov, 1921. This is one of my favorites as well, and it, it's a wonderful example of how radio was envisioned in the early 20th century, not only by inventors and engineers, but also by artists and visionaries uh, such as Klebnikov. Radio was seen as a means for the spiritual and intellectual unification of mankind. The idea of a single technological fabric enabling the unification of the human race across the globe. The War of the World by H.G. Wells. It's not only strictly informational in the sense of news and broadcasts, but for Klebnikov and many others, it's also a cultural unification. During the last fortnight, the British Navy. Io Silver, the Lone Ranger. Someone waits for me. There he is. A brand new sound. Looks like a big smash rooney for Bobby Rydell. The fact that millions of people all over the globe could be hearing the same piece of music broadcast at once through radio was incredibly significant. It is not clear how badly injured Oswald is. A man has been detained. One big hit right after another. And that's what he attempted to do justice to with his idea of the radio of the future. ABC Radio is 702BL News. Conservationists have attacked the new four-wheel drive party. But mostly I love trucking in my GMC. 
So there, a bit of serious futurology. Think of that when you turn on the wireless. We're done here. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed the tour. Bit different, wasn't it? Goodbye. That was Radio of the Future, dreamt up by Russian poet Velimir Klebnikov in 1921. The museum will close in five minutes. Please return all handsets to reception immediately. Well, that about does it for our tour of Third Coast's Institute of Sound. Special thanks to Victoria Farron, Chris O'Shaughnessy, and ABCRN Soundproof, who made the tour stops for the Museum of Imaginary Musical Instruments. To check that museum out, it does exist, at least on the internet, go to imaginaryinstruments.org. Of course, we know and you know that the Third Coast Institute of Sound doesn't really exist. Believe me, we wish it did. But we have the next best thing. Thousands of little audio exhibits in our listening library at thirdcoastfestival.org. Come in anytime. It is always open. You've been listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Dennis Funk and curated by Johanna Zorn of the Third Coast Festival. Isabel Vasquez is our production assistant. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. The Third Coast Festival, now an independent arts organization, was originally founded at WBEZ Chicago. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. You can also connect with us through Facebook and Twitter. Resound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else. So while we're over here in this part of the building, let me show you a really cool little secret in the bathroom. Go in there and flush the toilet that says out of order and see what happens. I'm completely serious. This is not a junior high prank. Sorry, you're recording this because your toilet made a noise. <laughs> Are you for real? <laughs> come on in, come on in. Where's the camera? I go. <laughs> so what's the question? So my toilet used to, when I flushed it, it would flush normally, and then about a minute after it flushed, it would, it would make this kind of... Yeah, water pressure. Water pressure, water hammer. Yeah, dodgy. Could be a dodgy ball change valve, the, I'd change the diaphragm straight away. Every night, in the middle of the night, she would wake up and go to the bathroom. And it closes and it goes thump. But then because there's a little bit, a tiny little pressure, it's not quite there, it opens again. Did you get it? Not really. Is that helpful for you? So what happens is the rubber goes dum, 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 and it sends a hum up through your pipe. It's like a whale going, She wakes up and goes to the bathroom. It would wake me, but my eyes stay shut. Why did it go? Water pressure. Yeah, water so, pressure. So, but what changed the water pressure? Water's on the straight. Water on the straight. Probably changed by the water balls. So I need to call the water mains people and find out why they... No. Why they've changed it's that. It's stopped now, you see. Yeah, but I wanted to do it. Right, so what you need to do, right, is you need to get hold of your ball valve. You just need to just slowly push it down. Like that. Um... Oh 
There's the flush. There's the tap. The lights click off. Footsteps on the landing. The door shuts. You pause by the bed to drink some water. Fifteen more seconds to shuffle around in. Then, just as we would find each other, Fluctuations is a work by Phil Smith for shortcuts from Falling Tree Productions. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply and BBC Radio 4.